Today on the Zabecast, Maryland tries to save its football coach and its season. It's a disgusting backpedal job at College Park. John Elway can't pick a good QB to save his life, yet Josh Norman thinks they make too much money. Plus, Warren Sharp of Sharp Football Analysis runs the numbers with me on the modern running game in the NFL. If you've got 45 minutes to kill, then buckle up and let's go! <laughs> Here we go! Wednesday, August 15, 2018. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for your precious data and download. Wallace, Lowe, and Damon Evans are a bunch of weasels. These would be the university president, Wallace D. Lowe. I always think of that song, Low, Low, Low. Wallace D. Lowe, president, and Damon Evans, the newly installed athletic director at the University of Maryland, have suddenly, 63 days after the death of Jordan McNair, a 19-year-old football player who died of heat stroke, 63 days later, have finally found their conscience. And they are heading for the hills. They are running and they're ducking and they're trying to cover. And they're just pretty much trying to save their own asses. This should, all of their, ja- all their asses should be in the jackpot, as Terry Collins likes to say. This should be a clean slate, crap seven, clear the table, get the big bamboo hook, and take every chip off the table. Wallace Lowe, gone. Damon Evans, gone. DJ Durkin, gone. Instead, so far, all they've done is they've fired the strength and conditioning coach, but they fired him with a nice, going away present of $315,000. Rick Court is the guy's name. And get this. (laughs) He's a strength and conditioning coach or a strength meathead. No offense to all you strength and conditioning coaches out there like my friend. uh, Oh, you know who should we get on the podcast here? I know. We haven't talked to him in a long time. Sal Marinello, our strength and conditioning coach to the stars. Anyway, um... Get this, the, the, the title that, you know, they got rid of Rick Court. Rick Court had a title at Maryland of Assistant Athletics Director for Sports Performance. Rick Court. Or translated, tough guy asshole who killed a kid. Boom. There's a better title for you. Basically, the team's football, uh, the football team's strength coach. He has been dismissed, but with a settlement of $315,000, which according to reports is about two-thirds of what he was due to make for the rest of his contract. So he walks out with a nice chunk of money. First of all, I don't know if I could take money like that after I supervised of the death of a player in my ca- I don't know how I could do it. I, to me, that's blood money, but whatever. Uh, I'm sure he's got his... Sure, he's sleeping well at night with this, whatever. So Maryland gets rid of their strength and conditioning coach. And just today, in an impromptu press conference on Tuesday, they, first of all, Maryland says, we're holding a presser. And everyone's like, yeah, when? Uh, And they're like, in two hours. And the media's like, oh, well, thanks. Uh, You know, that's pretty, pretty convenient. We'll just drop everything and come run out there, which, of course, the media did. And they got to hear Wallace D. Low, low, low. In his gay-ass Maryland bow tie. 
What is it with university presidents and their fucking bow ties? I don't get it. Remember the uh, remember Gordon Gee? I think Gordon Gee was not. Was he the president at uh, Ohio State? The Ohio State University. Gordon Gee, Ohio State. He too was big on bow ties. Yeah, there, there he is. That fucking fraud. E. Gordon Gee. Elwood. Elwood Gordon Gee as an American academic and currently oh, serving a second term as president of West Virginia. That's the other thing. These assholes get recycled in college athletics all the time. And I'm assuming old Wallace D. Low, low, low. He'll get recycled somewhere else. Wore a Maryland bow tie to this press conference. Here he is. Take a listen. Damon and I just got back from Baltimore. We went there this morning to meet with the parents of Jordan McNair. 63 and days I later. I want to meet with them in private to express on behalf of the university our apology for their loss of their son. Sorry. Sorry, by the way, we couldn't see heat stroke coming from a mile away. Sorry that ever since the Corey Stringer death in 2001, every football program of any size or scope, even high school programs, know how to look for, diagnose, head off, and treat heat stroke. But okay, go on, Dr. Low, Low, Low. I said to them, and I said I will be mentioning it publicly this afternoon, but I wanted them to hear it directly from me this morning. Yeah, yeah we, we got that. You're a big man. You went up there in person 63 days later. The university accepts legal and moral responsibility for the mistakes that our training staff made on that fateful workout day of May the 29th, which of course led subsequently to his death on June 13th. I explained to the parents that we have retained a very, an expert team. Oh, well, that's good. Don't worry. We've got an expert team that's going to look into it. Wallace Lowe talked for 11 minutes, took zero questions. Of course, he's the boss. He's not going to take questions from the media. He let his AD, Damon Evans, hold the bag of shit as he walked off the stage Evans took a handful of questions and then pretty much said, okay, that's it. I'm done. Legal and moral responsibility. Yes, there's going to be a huge payday. Yes, their insurance is probably going to cover it. And I think they wanted what they wanted to do, Maryland, and this is really the shape of it. They wanted to tiptoe through the summer and make it to the shores of the football season so that once the season began and games were being played, then this would sort of be lost in the wash. Oh, yeah, you know, sorry. Uh, Sorry, McNair family. Sorry about your kid. But, yeah, we got Michigan State coming up. Big game, big game this week. And it was only until, I think, it became apparent here in mid-August that this is how these cowards were going to handle it that the family said, okay, well, fuck it then. We're going public. So they basically, they hired a great attorney, uh, out of Baltimore, Billy Murphy. You heard uh, our own Jay Cottrell say Billy Murphy is the man. 
hired Billy Murphy and, and went on the offensive. And yes, they gave statements directly to ESPN for that report that really shook things up last Friday. And you can dismiss it as, well, that's just the family and their lawyer planting stories. Well, the stories, a lot of them have been corroborated. And by the way, there's a dead kid at the end of it. But basically, the family said, no, you're not going to fucking walk, tiptoe this all the way to the football season. And in a span of four days, the University of Maryland goes from, what? Everything's great. No, we gotta, We have our own internal investigation into this tragic death. And we are going to re- release the findings as soon as that investigation is finished. Is it finished yet? No, not yet. Still working on it. Okay. Well, well don't worry. As soon as we know, you will know. Uh, can you check again to see if it's done? It's done? No! And then you get to the season, and it all washes under the rug, or down the river, under the bridge. What's the cliche I'm looking for? Whatever the case. These fuckers, all of them. It's just amazing. And guess what? It's not just Maryland. It's almost every big-time college program. Not every, I said almost everyone. But a lot of them. Sleazy to the core. We'll see who survives. And for those that don't survive, they'll go somewhere else. They'll go somewhere else. They'll get a job somewhere else. Hey, uh, speaking of getting a job somewhere else, the Washington Redskins cut Orlando Scandrick, a cornerback for the Dallas Cowboys, that I said the minute they signed him, I go, that's a subprime idea, to say the least. I was extremely lukewarm on that. And people were like, no, no, he's going to be good. He's a veteran. I'm like, who the hell goes out and buys 31-year-old corners? Especially corners with a injury history like Skandrick. Well, the Redskins did. They felt they needed depth because they were losing Kendall Fuller and that trade to get Alex Smith here. So they bring him in, pay him a million-dollar signing bonus. He gets to keep that. He was going to cost $3.5 million this year or something like that. And they end up cutting him without even playing a preseason game. Which I guess I'm fine with because, like I said, I didn't think it was a good signing to begin with. But I am glad when I'm right, which I was here, and I'm also glad when I don't have to follow through on things that I said I would do. Like I said just a couple weeks ago, I I said, look, if Orlando Skandrick is one of our starting outside corners by Halloween, I will eat a full raw pumpkin right here on air. Of course, I've never eaten a raw pumpkin. Can you eat a raw pumpkin? All of its seeds, the gooey innards, the very hard (laughs) exterior. Anyway, I don't have to do that, so that's good. Also, it was a very energetic day at practice for the Redskins on Tuesday because Terrell Pryor came to town or was in town doing uh, joint practices with the Skins. And Terrell Pryor, as you probably know, was a Redskin last year for one year. We paid $8 million for him because he had a good statistical season with a bad Browns team that was on its way to 1-15 and And he racked up a lot of meaningless fantasy yardage. And we thought, oh, well, if he was that good with the Browns, think how good he'll be with us. And I was one of the dopes who thought that. And I was one of the guys who said in June, July, and August, this guy's going to be a fantasy sleeper. Look out. Turns out Terrell Pryor sucked. Okay, Terrell Pryor is a converted quarterback who has a sense of entitlement who turns out he's pretty much a bitch. He got yelled at by Todd Bowles because he was giving details about his injured ankle that I guess Coach Bowles doesn't like any players talking about their injuries. So basically, Bowles, who never criticized anybody, had to say publicly to, to, to Terrell Pryor, shut the fuck up. By the way, Terrell Pryor got four, paid $4 million from the Jets this year on a one-year deal. 
So in other words, hmm, you got eight million to suck with this team. Oh no, we're still we're not sure, but we'll give you we'll give you half of that to probably suck with us. Anyway, he had done something to anger most of the Redskins secondary, so they spent a good part of practice woofing at him and talking shit, and DJ Swearinger went up to him and faked a punch, and Terrell Pryor flinched, and everyone had a great hoot and hollering, whooping it up. And I'm like, okay, great. Do you guys know, dear Redskins secondary, you are going to face, out of the blocks, first four weeks of the year, Sam Bradford, Andrew Luck, Aaron Rodgers, Drew Brees. That's the four right out of the gate. Bradford doesn't belong in the same sentence as those. I get it. But still, you're going to get a fresh Sam Bradford in a new town, Arizona, at home. That's a formidable passing challenge. And it only gets harder from there. Assuming in week two that Andrew Luck is healthy and is on his way to a fully recovered season. And then Rodgers and Breeze. So good luck. Now that's a long way away from now, but it'll be coming up quick. So I would hope that if this secondary doesn't get their ass lit up, I hope that if they don't, hold on, I hope that if they do get their, no, I hope they don't get their ass lit up. But if they do, trust me, some people are going to be saying, yeah, you're so busy worrying about sticking it to Terrell David, Terrell Davis, Terrell Pryor <laughs> that you didn't focus on. Well, are we ready for the season? Are we going to be good enough to stop these passing attacks that are going to be coming at us hot and heavy? First four weeks of the year. Hey, Shady McCoy's being sued. Look at that. Yes, his ex-girlfriend who would not leave the house that Shady owned, who ended up beaten to within an inch of her life and having had jewelry stolen from her in a home invasion that has so far, amazingly, led to zero suspects, according to uh, Georgia police or Atlanta police. She is now suing Shady McCoy in civil court, saying not necessarily that he directed the attack, but that he is liable for her injuries because he changed the security codes on the house. He apparently changed the surveillance cameras on the house. And then right after this happened, and by the way, Shady's mom was trying to move shit out of the house. He was trying to evict her for some time. Police kept being called. They said, you can't take stuff that's hers. You can't take stuff that's joint property. Uh, He's going to have to hash it out in court. Lo and behold, just weeks, maybe months, a couple months after this, you know, he he changes the security codes and the cameras. Oh, somebody happens to rob the house, beat the shit out of her, steal the jewelry that Shady wanted back from her. Oh, got no suspects. Hey, Roger, are you paying attention? Does this interest the league at all? Nah. No, they don't care until it becomes an actual story. Uh, A lot of praise for Sam Darnold, quarterback, New York Jets. I get it. Jets fans are starred for a good quarterback. It's been a while, right? He looked good in his preseason debut. Even more funny was that Sam Darnold said, God, you know, I like the NFL because these narrow hash marks, which are tighter together than in college, they let me see the field better. I don't know what it is. He said it was like easier for me to, to, to sort of identify coverages and single safety high and et cetera, et cetera. I'm just paraphrasing what he said. A lot of people laughed and said, <laughs> you dummy. And it's not the hash marks, man. It's week one of the preseason. Do you think these are the looks that you're going to get 
when the flag drops and the gun goes off. I'm mixing metaphors again. Do you really believe this is what you're going to see in the regular season? <laughs> it's great. You played like a half, maybe, if that. I'm not even sure. It might have been a quarter. You don't think they're going to adjust during the game, huh? Yeah, man, this NFL's easy. Sam Darnold, of course. Many media members say he looks great. Redskid players said he looked great in the joint practices. They were impressed. God, this happens all the time. I'm not saying he's going to suck. I'm just saying you don't know. They don't know. Nobody knows. You know who also looks shitty right now is Paxton Lynch. Uh, Going into, I think, his third year with the Broncos, he was drafted in the first round, late first out of Memphis, and he has now been dropped to third string on the Denver Broncos depth chart. John Elway was a legend at quarterback, a Hall of Famer. He cannot pick a good quarterback out of Duke Ellington's band, and that is a very dated reference. What the hell did you just say? Ah, you know. I had a buddy once who said, you couldn't pick something out of Duke Ellington's band. Usually a white guy, because Duke Ellington, jazz you know, icon of the 1920s, all-black jazz band, and it's like, really, you can't pick the white guy out of that? Or, or if it's a black guy you can't pick out, I'd say you couldn't pick so-and-so out of an Osmond family photo. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Brock Osweiler was a John Elway idea. Sucked. Zach Dysert was a seventh-round dart throw out of Miami. Didn't work out. Trevor Simeon, seventh rounder. Hung in, hung in, hung in. Still not very good. Paxton Lynch now being dropped down to third string. See, here's the thing about late firsts. You know, Aaron Rodgers is a late first. There are other quarterbacks who have been late firsts. In general, though, and I don't have the data to back this up, although I should. Nice research. If you're taking a quarterback in the late first, It's probably not worthy of being a first-round pick. I'm just saying. All right, before we get to Warren Sharp and uh, his uh, take on NFL running games, a couple more things real quick. And I've got stat of the day here today. You're going to be excited about the stat of the day. I I got a lot of people asking me on Twitter and also email, hey, man, how can Adam Scott's putter be legal? I thought they got rid of those long broomstick putters. Well, for you casual golf fans, they didn't exactly. The USGA, in conjunction with the Royal and Ancient, that would be the European-based governing body, the two big governing bodies of the rulers of golf, they they decided that uh, anchoring the putter, whether it's with a long broomstick that you hold like you're sweeping, anchoring it to your chest or your sternum, or belly putters where you stick it into your belly. They determined that those were against the spirit of the game of golf, and they declared anchoring illegal. They didn't declare the clubs illegal. And so what they did was um, they created some guy, like Bernard Longer use, has been using a long putter for a long, long time because he famously had the yips uh, when he played, and so his putting came and went in streaks. Then he found the long putter, and you can't stop him. He's still using Bernard Longer a long putter, but he's not anchoring it. But some people say, oh, looks kind of close to your chest there. 
See, here's the problem with the anchoring ban. I've yet to see anyone bust anybody for saying that's actually touching your sternum. There's no way to objectively, absolutely determine if that's the case. And here's here's where it gets interesting. So I'm at my local club the other day practicing my putting in advance for this trip to Scotland on Friday night. Uh, by the way, I've breakthrough putting-wise for me. Here's what I figured out. Claw grip, I'm just going to have to go with the claw grip uh, or the pencil grip or the, or the paintbrush grip. I don't think I use the full claw. The full claw is your, your underhand. Well, you golf nerds know what I'm talking about. So uh, claw grip and get this. Look at the hole from three feet in or three to four feet. Short putts, look at the hole. Don't look at the ball. I'm telling you, (laughs) I was making everything on the putting green, which of course means I will not make it when it actually counts. By the way, Jordan Spieth, when he won his first Masters, looked at the hole on short putts pretty much the entire tournament. So it does work until it stops working, and then you got to try something else. I've never tried the true broomstick putter other than a couple times on the green. It didn't really suit my tastes. I don't think it's necessarily that good. But the other day I'm at, at my club and I'm practicing some putts and there is a, a senior pro event organized by one of the pros, uh, Larry Rinker, uh, or Larry Ringer. Yeah, Larry Ringer, not Rinker. Both are former pro players. But uh, Larry Ringer, good guy here in the Mid-Atlantic region. He organizes a pro get-together. It's some cash money game, you know, once a month kind of thing. Or maybe once a week. And so all these these you know older you know PGA professionals were there, and you know he's I'm chatting up on the green, and he's like, that guy over there in the orange, he's a really good player, and I see him, and he's got the long putter, this other fellow pro in orange. And I jokingly say, just to be a guy and break some balls, I'm like, yeah, you know, I'd like to see a little more space between that upper hand and your chest. The pro in the orange shirt doesn't even look up. I can tell he's like, who the fuck is this guy? Because I didn't know who he was. It's like, who the fuck is this guy calling me a cheater? He doesn't look up, and he proceeds to drain one, two, three, 20-footers in a row. And I think at that point, Larry said, yeah, you know, he, he'd he rather cheat a little bit and still win some money. It was just some kind of dismissive thing. But I thought to myself, hmm. I wonder how many guys are using long putters that are still anchoring it at lesser events, whether it's a you know $20 buy-in match or something else, and who's going to call it on them? I think what the USGA should have done, first of all, I think the USGA should have allowed these putters to keep allowing anchoring. I mean, other than Adam Scott, Bernard Langer, a couple other guys, it wasn't like 50% of the tour was doing this. This is a crutch for bad putters and for old dudes who have whiskey yips and can't get the ball in the hole. My that'd be my number one thing. Don't anchor anchor all you want, who gives a shit. My second solution would be to make a maximum limit on putters. There's a now a maximum length on drivers, I think it's 52 inches. Just do the same for putters, make 38 inches the longest. You can't anchor 38 inches. I mean, maybe you could anchor it to your crotch, I suppose. But who would want to do that and how painful would that get? Okay, you done talking putting, Zabe? Okay, I'll give you this then. Stat of the day. If you like stats. 
Stat of the Day. Currently, the total number of left-handed quarterbacks on NFL rosters is zero. And the last left-handed touchdown pass thrown in the league was thrown by one Des Bryant. Behold your stat of No lefties. No lefties in the NFL right now. All right, time now for a guy who deals in numbers all the time. He does a great job of taking data to the next level. If you know him, you love his work. If you don't, then get to know him. He is Warren Sharp of Sharp Football Analysis. His 2018 preview guide is out. 252 pages of full-color glory, chock full of great stuff, charts, graphs, stats, you name it. Take your football knowledge to the next level. You can find it on Amazon.com. All right, Warren, how we doing, my friend? The season is creeping up on us quick, isn't it? It is, and that, and that's a good thing because, frankly, I mean, we've had a lot of the off season, and, and football has now turned into a 12-month-a-year sport that we get to analyze it a lot. And, frankly, I'm, I'm looking forward to new storylines developing and uh, new things to analyze. So I'm not complaining that it's getting here very quickly, but it's it absolutely is right you know, right around the corner. All right, we're going to talk almost exclusively running in this uh, podcast today because you do a lot of fascinating analysis of how NFL teams run, which ones run better than others, and, and there's a lot of data on it. So we'll start digging in here. I will begin with one of the most uh, tired, age-old expressions. We've all heard it. You establish the run, Warren, to set up the pass. In 2018, what is wrong with that statement? That is incorrect because, number one, rushing is one-fourth as correlated to wins in the NFL as is passing. So passing is significantly more important and more correlated to winning games. And number two, just on a per-play basis, passing is is significantly more efficient, particularly on first downs, than is rushing. Therefore, it makes no sense to try to come out and attempt to establish the run. uh, And you're basically establishing the fact that you're going to allow the other team to become more efficient than you are quickly in this game. And you're going to have to ultimately, in most cases, play from behind. The only circumstances that would not be the case would be when you're better than the other team to begin with. So right. it probably wouldn't matter if you pass or run the football because you're just so much better than they are. But running it, running the football is like eating your vegetables, though, isn't it, in football? You still have to do it, correct, to have a balanced offensive attack? Oh, absolutely. There are certain times when running the football is the most efficient play call that you could have. Those times, generally speaking, are short yardage situations, whether it's third or fourth down and short. Those times run plays are 68% successful, whereas pass plays are only 53% successful. So that's a substantial benefit when you run the football on those situations. And then inside the red zone, a lot of teams look to uh, just – 
throw the football down there. They want to put it in their quarterback's hands. But the reality is in such confined space there that if you spread the field and run, you're going to have a lot better edge when you do that. And rushing is substantially more significant, uh, more successful in the red zone. It's not quite as large of a gap between uh, short yardage but it still is substantially more successful inside the red zone. Apart from those two situations, short yardage and red zone, you need to run the ball, but only if it's because you've passed the ball so much that the defense has adjusted now and is playing their dime packages and they're out of their sub out of their base personnel too much and then you could come back and run the ball to get them back into their base personnel more often. But th- th- those are situational um, times to do it. For the most part, you want to be a pass-oriented offense in 2018. All right, let's talk here in Washington with the Redskins. You crunched some numbers on Jay Gruden and how he approaches the run game. You found through your data analysis that he was incredibly inefficient being very run heavy on first downs in particular. I think I saw the number that they ran the most, the third most, I believe the Redskins did, on first down, and it just wasn't very efficient. What's going on with Jay in the running game here in D.C.? Yeah, in D.C., I have definite concerns. Like I absolutely hope that they get back on track, but Uh, The reality is that the Redskins, it it seems shocking, and Redskins fans probably don't even know this, and this is one of the things I find when I'm researching metrics and looking at things from a little bit different perspective, is that some of the things that you find, like even hardcore fans of teams don't realize that these things are even happening. But for the Washington Redskins, on first and tens in the first half, and the reason I isolate it to the first half is because The second half is more of a reactionary half, just like third down is more of a reactionary down. You call plays based upon the situation that you're in. So a third is short. You call one thing on third and long. You obviously have to pass the ball. Same thing in the second half. In the second half, you're generally reacting to what happened in the first half. What's the score? What's the situation? What do I have to start doing in this half that I maybe could benefit more from? Whereas in the first half, you're more going along with, here's my mentality. This is the philosophy that I have as a coordinator. Here's the best opportunity I see uh, strengths of our team and the way that we're going to defeat these opponents. And the Redskins were actually the third most run-heavy team on first and tens of any team in the NFL. They were even more run-heavy than the Dallas Cowboys, who are one of the least least creative run teams in the NFL. Uh, All they want to do is run the football as much as possible. That tells you how much Washington was running the ball last year. The only two teams that ran the ball more often than Washington were teams with rookie quarterbacks, the Chicago Bears, who had a horrible coaching situation in Chicago. Both that, their, that front office got fired, as well as the Houston Texans, who were playing with Deshaun Watson for much of the year, and then he got injured, and they were then they were playing with backup caliber quarterbacks after that. Those are the only two teams that actually ran the ball more than the Redskins. So they ran the ball way too often on first and 10 in the first half. They went 62% run. But their passes gained a 54% success rate, 10% more successful than their run plays. So they were more productive. They gained almost twice as many yards per play as they did when when they passed the ball, as they did when they ran the ball. They were a pathetic 3.4 yards per carry on these first and 10 runs, but they ran the ball 
almost two out of every three plays. And it was just way, way too skewed towards the run, leaving the team in very inefficient situations on second and third down. So ironically, Gruden should pass more often, especially on first and 10 in the first half. Because a lot of my callers say, Gruden's not committed to the run. He just doesn't have a taste for it. He's like Spurrier. You're actually advocating for more passing on first down to allow for what? Better, more efficient running in different down and distant situations? Absolutely. And your callers, like, I don't want to get on anybody's bad side, but they're <laughs> patently wrong with suggesting that the Redskins should be running the football more or that they're not committed to the run. Jay Gruden is clearly on early down situations, one of them. Well, I hope now with Alex Smith that that will change. I hope that maybe it was just a lack of confidence in Kirk Cousins. But even when they didn't have as great wide receivers last year, we all know that with Sean Jackson and other wide receivers, they had better success you know, in the past. But even without great wide receivers last year, they were still averaging almost twice as many yards per play on those pass plays as they were when they handed the football off. So the reason why you want to pass the ball more, especially in Washington, and especially with the injury to the run to the starting running back there, guys, is that you want to gain more yards on first down. The floor on first downs has risen since back, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Back, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, on average, your completion rate would be about a 58% completion rate league-wide right. on first to 10. Now that's increased all the way up to 65%. That's not a small jump, even though a lot of people might think it's only 7%. That is a massive increase. What that means is you don't have as many incompletions. You don't have as many plays on first down that if you decide to call a pass, you gain no yards. And then you're setting up second and 10. What you have is a higher floor because the completion rate is increased by 7% up to over 65%. And you're gaining a higher yards per attempt, 7.7 yards per attempt league-wide the last three years on first and 10 passes. By passing the ball, you're setting, you're gaining more yards. You're allowing your team to have more advantageous play calls available to them on second down because you're not going to be in as many second and long situations. Right. And therefore, you're able to have just be on schedule and be able to catch the defense more off guard and dictate to the defense what happens as opposed to being dictated to because you're in long yarded situations and the defense knows that you're going to have to pass. All right, let's go to Dallas. You write about Dak and Zeke in Dallas and especially about Zeke. You say to increase the efficiency this year while improving Zeke's chances of having a nice long career, Dallas should decrease total rushing volume and transition some of those touches to receptions. And I did see where apparently uh, Zeke is working on his pass catching to be more like uh, Marshall Falk and some other running backs who are very good out of the backfield. Is there more to it in Dallas? Because they got a great offensive line, but uh, is there more to how they should use Zeke this year in Dallas that you see? Well, absolutely. Dallas is the team that's just totally adverse, adverse to calling pass plays to the running backs pass plays on early downs to the running back is one of the more efficient pa uh, passes that a quarterback can throw you do not want to be throwing the football to a running back on third down even really? though i've done some it's the least efficient target for a quarterback 
of any positional group. Pass it to wide receivers or pass that's, it to tight ends. That's interesting down. because that goes against the stereotype of, well, we need a third down pass catching back, right? Don't you hear it's that a lot? And yet the data shows, data shows it's an inefficient target. Wow. Absolutely 100% accurate. Uh, the passes to the running backs are the least likely to gain a first down when you're on third down. The passes to running backs, however, are actually more successful on first down to running backs than they are to wide receivers. If you target a running back out of the backfield or split them out in the slot, I prefer the slot rather than out wide. It's a higher efficiency from the slot. The data backs it up. Those passes are going to produce more successful plays in terms of uh, success rate, which looks at how many average yards you're gaining based on the down and distance to go and determines the threshold. And do you exceed it or do you not? It's binomial one or zero. Those are the more efficient plays to actually throw passes to throw then towards a wide receiver. Tight ends are among the most efficient passes on any down to throw the football to. They have just such a matchup edge. That's why it's so essential that Jordan Reed is healthy. But getting back to Zeke, Zeke and, and Dak and Dallas, the running back passes on early downs are the most efficient time to throw the football to a running back. And if you want to try to gain efficiency, you need to throw the running back the ball in those situations. But Dallas is the least likely 15 percent of the huh. early down passes go to running backs. And that's last season when they didn't really have great wide receivers. I mean, Dez was over the hill. Jason Witten was reliable, but he didn't have very much, very high of an upside on his receptions. They didn't really have anybody else besides that. Fast forward to this year, their receiving core is even worse. And I find it very humorous that in the offseason, the uh, Dallas, uh, the, the talk of the town has been Dallas, oh, we got Zeke and we can throw him the football. And he's got so many ups, so, such an upside when you throw him the football. He can do many things with the football in space. And I'm thinking, did you just draft this guy? Like, did you just acquire him in free agency this season? Why weren't you taking taking advantage of all the great things you're talking about right. the last two seasons when they could have been throwing him the football more. So I hope they do. It will increase their efficiency, especially without very good receivers in Dallas this season. Well, uh, but if they do throw the football to uh, him on first down or second down more often, it is going to help raise the floor. And the other thing that it does is it helps career longevity. It helps extend the health of the running back because it is more likely that a running back is going to get injured when you run through your offensive line, through defensive linemen and heavy linebackers running downhill to tackle you through gaps rather than getting him the ball outside in space as a reception and then letting him see exactly who is coming up to tackle him and not having the threat of all these heavy linemen falling on his lower extremities. So that's another way to just extend their health a little bit is to shift some of the volume from rushes to re to receptions via yeah. targets. The, the old uh, mantra was just throw it to Dez. Well, Dez is gone, so now the new mantra, I guess, is going to be throw it to Zeke and let him run with it. Also, when it comes to doing counterintuitive things with passes to running backs, the Redskins used to have a fullback, Darrell Young, who was built like a Coke machine, basically. And on third and goal inside around the five-yard line, they used to throw flat passes to him where he'd just slip out of the backfield. He had incredibly soft hands, caught everything, and had a great nose for the end zone. I'm telling you, Warren, that play couldn't be stopped. And I'm like, we can't call that play enough. Nobody's expecting it. So a lot of it is being counterintuitive. Let's talk Seahawks for a second. You had an interesting note about this. 
Uh, Chris Carson looks like is going to be their starting running back. And he was a seventh-round pick, and he is severely outplaying Rashad Penny, who was a first-round pick. So how does a team sort of square this, given how much resources in terms of draft pick and money is invested in a guy who is not better than somebody much further down the draft board? Yeah, it's sad what's happening in Seattle because everybody remembers his team winning the Super Bowl with Russell Wilson and and having such a great team and a defense for several years. But the reality is they had a couple of great, great drafts. After that, they have not been nearly as intelligent with their draft selections or haven't hit as much. And that's why this team is struggling. I think they're going to struggle a fair amount this season. I think they're going to go under their eight and a half projected wins by Las Vegas. But if you talk about what they, the mistakes that they made, it doesn't just even start this year. Last season, heading into the season, they decided that it was better for them to sign Eddie Lacy than it was to retain the running back who they just let get away. They absolutely uh, cut the starting running back, Alex Collins, who is now, he wasn't starting for them, but they signed Eddie Lacy, cut Alex Collins. Ozzie Newsom and his intelligence picked up Alex Collins for the Baltimore Ravens, and now he's their starting running back for this season. Yeah. He was free. He was literally free, and he's the starting running back. They also had their, like we said, he was picked fifth, the fifth to last player in the draft in 2017 was Chris Carson. Okay, and the he is now projected to be the starting running back over Rashad Penny. The Seattle Seahawks really botched a number of things with their running backs. You don't want to allocate substantial amounts. I mean, unless the guy is truly just ridiculously talented, you don't want to allocate so much draft commodity to a running back because these players get hurt a lot and the replacement level talent is easy to find. I mean, I say with Rashad Penny that running backs are a dime a dozen, let alone a penny. Why would you be spending a first round pick on this guy? Because you can get decent running backs to produce in almost any scheme. Right. And And sometimes, yeah. And and then, and then sometimes you get, I mean, there's another example in the form of uh, Cleveland's running back. They drafted out of Alabama. I'm getting brain lock right now. It's been a long Tuesday for me, Warren. Uh, He ends up going to the Colts and then washing out of the league. And he was a first round pick Richardson. So, so, you know, Trent Richardson, uh, as a uh, former GM, uh, Chris, not Chris Ballard of the Colts, but the old guy Grigson, he called him a rolling ball of butcher knives. Actually, I think that was their, uh, uh, that was, uh, their head coach Pagano. He's like, we got him. He's a rolling ball of butcher knives. This guy's going to be great. He sucked Trent Richardson and they couldn't figure out why it was. So there is a real bust factor with a lot of running backs. And when you take one high and he's in the process of busting it's hard to say, let's give his carries to somebody else. And that's when teams get in trouble. And I'm going to use that, Warren, as a jumping off point to ask you about Saquon Barkley and the Giants and how you think their running attack will be this year. Well, I think, you know, Saquon could be one of those, you know, ridiculously talented players who could ultimately prove worthy of that position, you know, where they drafted him. But the fact of the matter is, you basically traded away the option to draft a starting quarterback, and instead you went with Saquon Barkley. And Eli Manning is at the tail end of his career, and 
while I like their offensive coordinator and head coach now, Pat Shermer, who's going to be you know calling the plays in New York. And, and he obviously worked in very difficult situations the last two years dealing with massive injuries in Minnesota with Bradford going down after week one. They had to bring in Case Keenum the year before that. They had to acquire Bradford uh, from Philadelphia in a trade because Bridgewater went out right before the start of the season. So there's definitely been difficult situations. And now hopefully he'll have a guy who will be consistent. But the problem is they lost they, they lost the ability to draft a quarterback. And we're hearing great stories about what Sam Darnold has been doing so far this season in New York. And they, you know, they could have had Sam Darnold if they wanted him, but they decided to go for Barkley. So there's only so much that a running back can contribute to the game of football because passing is so much more efficient that it's so much easier to throw the football than it is to run the football, especially with the new relaxed catch rules, that while running backs are definitely valuable, they're going to have to find ways to get this guy like tons of volume through receptions as well as rushes in order to try to get their money's worth out of what they spent on him and I just think like if you look at what the Giants did and, and I sh- I'm sure you know this because they're another team in the division but the the New York Giants they were able to actually improve their rushing efficiency last season even though they didn't win very many games their rushing efficiency was actually not very bad uh, and one of the um, sorry, two years ago, the rushing efficiency wasn't bad. And the way that they improved that was simply by drafting some mid round picks and working them more into the lineup. They didn't need to go to like the number, you know, such a high overall selection to grab a running back like second overall. So I was against the fact that they did that. But that does not mean that Barkley's not going to be special, nor does it mean that he's not going to have a great season. I think that there's a lot of upside for him, and they've got a rebuilt offensive line, and it could help his overall performance. But I just am, am worried about the long-term projection of the Giants because Eli Manning's there and not a better quarterback who could be taking over the reins possibly next season. Yeah, I think the Giants definitely bowed to deference in Eli. You know, they It didn't go over well when he was benched, uh, by Coach McAdoo, and that ushered him out of town. And the thought of let's bring in a guy that could compete with him in a year or two, that didn't go over well, so they took the running back. Barkley looked great in that first preseason game, busted off a nice big run, but he's already in the shop for a bit of a tweaked hamstring. You just wonder about you know how durable he can be. The other thing is that the pro-Barkley people believe he'll be like the Fournette effect or the Zeke Elliott effect and that he will be a difference-making running back, even in 2018, Warren, where running is not as big a part of the game as it was in the 70s. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Leonard Fournette, because I think there's a big-time misconception about Leonard Fournette and what he was able to do. Um, 50% of Leonard Fournette's carries last season gained two or fewer yards. That ranked 25th out of 28 running backs who had at least 175 attempts. Really? Only 26% of his rushes gained five or more yards. That ranked 27th out of 28 running backs. He averaged only 3.88 yards per carry. His 43% success rate was 17th out of 28, so definitely below average there. The reason why he looked so impactful for this team is because of the total volume. Their defense got so much better, especially against the pass. Remember, passing is more correlated to success in the NFL. They had the number one pass defense in the NFL. So opposing teams couldn't move the ball. 
that the Jacksonville Jaguars had a lot of opportunities to call run plays because opposing teams struggled to score points. And as a result, Jacksonville could run the football more. So everybody looks at like in the age of fantasy football, everybody looks at, oh, well, Leonard Fournette was uh, running back number whatever, and he produced so many touchdowns. That's because of the overall volume. He was not very efficient in Jacksonville. It was because of the overall volume that he had. Now, I like the fact that they were able to not throw the football as much with Blake Bortles because he struggles to throw the football at times, but it is still not the most intelligent strategy to win games by relying on a running back like Fournette. And the other thing we keep mentioning about injuries, Fournette is injury prone. He's had tweaked ankles. He had in college. He had it in the NFL. So you know, that they allocated a lot of money to him and they got, I guess you could say they got their money's worth. They went to the AFC championship game, but it was not because he was like some stud who was just ultra productive as a running back. It was actually simply because they had such a good defense that they could use him more often. Yeah. Defense plus volume rushing and a few really big pops every game kind of distorted the picture on Leonard Fournette. As we wrap up here, and we could go on for quite a while, but we're going to wrap it up here, uh, I want the quick speed round, 30 seconds or less, your opinion of, of a set of specific plays. I'm going, to, I'm going to run some plays at you. You tell me what you think of them and whether or not you've done any real data dives on these specific plays. You ready, Warren? Yep. Jet sweep. <laughs> Don't do it near the goal line like the Atlanta Falcons. Uh <laughs> Yeah, that was that was absolutely ridiculous. I think that there are many more plays that are have a higher ceiling than the jet sweep. I do like misdirection, but uh, I'm not a huge fan of the jet sweep. End zone fade. Boy, Jay Gruden oh, has been I, trying to complete one of those for five years now. I I absolutely hate the call. Um, if you're going to be throwing the football down near the end zone you got to try to use some pick routes or misdirection type stuff because they don't call those things. So take advantage of that. Um, The fades are very low percentage, and I think they're horrible passes. Uh, I I really dislike them. All right. The shovel pass or shuttle pass, I hear it both ways. I'm okay with that. I like Um, that play. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't mind that play whatsoever. It's 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 hard to on you know my analytic side of things be able to break out the numbers because it's generally just charted as a pass. as a passing play because it's a, a forward pass. So I like the fact that if it's accidentally dropped, that's okay. Um, but you know, it's so I don't see anything wrong with the play itself. It's I think like it's, a, it's, a it's like trick. an interior run with zero downside because if your guy drops it, it's incomplete. But you're basically running an inside draw of sorts out of what looks like a passing formation. The naked bootleg, what do you think? It's a misdirection type play, and so I don't mind it one bit. Um, Especially if you have different levels that you can complete the pass to down the field. Like You want to have a couple guys on that side of the field running at different levels. Um, and, and in those cases, I don't mind it. Kyle Shanahan has been one who's been very good at dialing up the naked bootleg and having a lot of success with it. Um, so I, th- I think it's fine, in my opinion. All right, and finally, the toss sweep. Um, I, I, it, it depends. Sometimes that can be too predictable, in my opinion. Um, you, you could see it coming from a mile away at times. Uh, so it, it, if it works, then it's great. I don't really care one way or another about it, but I just find that it's somewhat predictable and 
Um, I prefer other methods. I like RPO. I think teams need to utilize the RPO. I'm fascinated to see what the Redskins end up doing with with Alex Smith. And, you know, he can run it, but an RPO is totally different than like a read option where the quarterback is going to be the one running the ball. They're just reading like a linebacker and trying to make the defense wrong at every point in time. I prefer those types of rushes at like, as like the newer age of football rather than, you know, the old toss sweep. Yeah. And uh, the toss sweep on third and one that goes from minus four, easily one of the most remote smashing plays in all of football. And every team does it from time to time, Warren. And it I drives people crazy. I with Chris Thompson last season, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, okay. yeah. The slow developing toss sweep on third and short. And you're like, son of a bitch, who didn't see that one coming? Get Warren Sharp's Bible, 252 glorious full-color pages of charts and graphs and numbers and football goodness. You remind me of, and maybe you're too young to remember this, something called the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Yearbook. Once upon I have a, heard of it, but I not being not being a college basketball person, I never I've never looked at it, but in this, I have heard of it. And what's beautiful is in this day and age, Warren, of everything is on the internet, and of course Warren does have an excellent website, sharpfootballanalysis.com, and you can also and should follow him on Twitter at Sharp Football. I love the hard analog copy. It's great because it goes with you everywhere. You don't have to have a Wi-Fi signal. You can make notes. You can put sticky notes in there. It's a glorious thing. Once upon a time, just for everyone's sake, the uh, somebody put out a huge uh, book of every Division One college basketball team come tournament time in March. It was a very short time window, Warren, to get this out. But it was crucial if you were a fan of the tournament to know, well, what is San Jose State all about? Who do they have? And so they would put out this thing called the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Yearbook. Your your season preview, which is available on Amazon, is great because it's a hard copy thing. It's full of tons of charts, a great supplement for any football fan. So congratulations. I'm sure it took quite a while to assemble. No, I appreciate it. Yeah, it, I basically took two weeks off after the Super Bowl and then got right into it. And as you could probably tell, apart from a, a couple of editors, which we still need to continue to uh, improve the editing, but apart from a couple of editors, I was the one responsible for everything in here. So all the charts, all the graphs, all the writing, all the layout, uh, everything with it is is a labor of love for me. And it basically takes me from late mid to late February all the way until uh, late June so it is definitely a lot of work, but it gets me ready for the season. And then I love sharing it with the fans out there and listeners and, and being able to talk about it on shows like yours and podcasts. It's a lot of fun. All right. Good stuff, Warren. We'll talk again soon. All right. Sounds great. Thanks, Steve. We'll end with these two today. First of all, a guy in a zoo spanked a hippo. <laughs> what? Now we all know hippos are very dangerous. They kill more tourists and civilians in parts where hippos exist and pretty much any other animal. Very territorial, total mean streak, and they don't give a fuck. So there's a video. Of course there had to be a viral video. Of course this was done to get a little slice of internet fame. This guy sneaks up and he leans over this wall, which sort of looked like a a big swimming pool where the hippos were hanging out, and just gives a little pat to the butt of a hippo. I felt baited and deceived by the clickbait headline of, you know, man slaps, you know, man spanks hippo at zoo. 
Like, how crazy is this guy? Well, he wasn't that crazy because he never got down in the actual uh, reservoir with the hippos. And on land, hippos not nearly as dangerous as in the water where they grab you and they drown you. But I'm not a hippo expert. If you really want to go viral, if you really want my respect on the internet, then you better get into that hippo exhibit and you better get up there and you better spank the shit out of that hippo ass. You better just, bam, give her. Don't be leaning over like that going, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm famous now. I'm famous on the internet. I'll probably get charged with a crime. And the second one, it, this is two times now in five days, man commits suicide with airplane. This one, though, with a bit of a darker twist. He committed suicide while trying to commit homicide. A man in Utah, after being charged with domestic violence, flew his own airplane, a single-engine prop plane, straight into his own house in an attempt to kill his wife. Are you fucking kidding me? You got to see the pictures of this house. The house, even though it was engulfed in flames almost immediately, and by the way, the two people in the house, I presume one was his wife, uh, got out safely. Even though the house was engulfed in flames, it's mostly standing. All you can see is like the, the, the tail of his single-engine prop plane. But what kind of bath salts are people on these days that they do this shit? Why is it? Why is it that when it comes to men and women having disputes, the men, when they feel wronged, will go crazy? And the women, too, to some extent. But there is no level of crazy quite like a woman-induced level of crazy. No guy would fly his own airplane into his own house to kill another guy. No chance. But because it's his, uh, it's his wife or ex-wife or who knows... Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, I, and I got a domestic violence rap, and I'm going to go to jail, and life's going to really, really suck, and God, I hate this bitch. So, ooh, I got an idea. Let me go get my airplane, and... Seriously, people. Guess it shows that there is no more powerful force in the universe than Poontang. That will be a wrap for today. You know the drill. Tell two friends. Hit up that Reddit thread that I've got about how great the Zabecast is. Leave a positive review and rating. Download, subscribe to all the major podcast outlets, iTunes, Google Play, and more. And always remember, as Dr. Ruth Westheimer once said, if it feels good, do it. Unless that is flying your own plane into your own house to try to kill your wife. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. It's